just started over again this year. We just started uh, our new series, and we're in the book of Genesis. And how we do this is we read the Word of God together six days a week. And then our sermon is based in whole or in part on the readings that we've had. And so if you'd like a schedule of our reading, we have... um, we have a, a schedule, a little booklet that tells you all of the scriptures we're going through through the year. You can find that at the information desk. There's also a little, uh, for those of you who are note takers, where's my note takers? Raise your hand if you're a note taker. Yeah, praise God for you guys. So if you're a note taker, you're going to want to get the accompanying booklet that goes with it. We got a little notebook that goes with it that you can keep together, write notes in there about the things that you're learning both on a daily and weekly basis. And uh, you can get those for a donation over at the information desk. And we've been going through the book of Genesis. And last week we talked about the father of faith. We talked about Abraham and we looked about uh, how his walk of faith was very similar to the walk of faith that Jesus wants for you and me and, and how that really kind of looks. Uh, I would really encourage you, if you weren't here last week, check out the sermon from last week uh, so that you can have a basis of that. This next half is the second half of Abraham's life. It kind of culminates in the, the potential sacrifice of Isaac. And those of us who are familiar with the Word of God, it's a familiar account for us. And Everything in Abraham's life leads to that moment. However, it's the same trajectory of faith that we talked about last week. We still saw Abraham being faithful, keeping his eyes on on God every step of the way and growing more faithful as time would go on. What we're really going to look at today is we're going to look at his nephew, Lot, in a sermon that I'm entitling, An Honest View of Compromise. For just as Abraham is the father of faith, I believe that through Lot we see an example of compromise. And I think the account of Lot can be summarized through a couple of sayings. One of them scriptural and one of them not. The non-scriptural saying is this, sin will take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Or put another way, 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three says this, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. This is what we find in the account of Lot. And before we get started in Lot, I think it's important that we kind of define some terms that our culture today doesn't necessarily accept, but we have to understand it biblically to understand why it's important. And I'm talking about sin. Sin or wrongdoing or unrighteousness has no meaning unless there's a transcendent standard by which to judge a man's actions. If everything is just an opinion and I can do what I want to do, if everything is just an accident and we're just the latest in the long line of evolutionary chain, the ultimate um, conclusion that we can come to that is that morality and the things that define right and wrong are merely stated opinions. 
in order for us to have any definitive uh, standing of what right and wrong is, we have to have a transcendent law that goes beyond culture, that goes beyond time, to every single person that finds it binding. It's binding to you, it's binding to me, it's binding a thousand years ago, it's binding no no matter what culture you find yourself in. It's binding because that transcendent law applies to all and not just some. And not just in some circumstances. In order to have a transcendent law, you must have a transcendent being that creates that law. That puts that law into motion in order to judge humanity by. To be able to say, this is right and this is wrong. And that transcendent being would have that authority because he would have created you and me and therefore would know why and how and the purpose for which our creation exists. They become true simply because of the nature of the being who created They're true because he's established them and he doesn't change. Therefore, they do not change. Anybody who's seen the Roman gods or the gods of the Greeks find that they're very, they're very like just big superheroes, if you will. They change their minds. Their morals don't seem that great. It's almost like we could judge them by not being that good. That's not the type of God we are talking about. We're talking about a transcendent being that created all that there is. See, the standards of this God who created these things don't care for our modern day sensibilities, which ebb and flow with every whim of the culture. As a matter of fact, the Bible declares that such unstable morality is infantile. Ephesians chapter 4, we will no longer be tossed to and fro like infants, battered like every wave of the sea through every teaching and doctrine that comes this way. So that's what what an infant does when they don't know something. They go to the next thing that seems good. But maturity in Christ demands that we recognize that there's a fixed point of reference in God and a fixed morality that he has set forth that doesn't care what our culture does, what our world does, or what our opinions are, because they're not based upon man's creation. They're God's. Without understanding that, it's really hard to come into a place like this, like a church. If we believe what the culture believes, that things change over time, then the, this conversation that we're going to continue have about a transcendent God who is over all things and orders all things, who has created all things, including the morality and the things that are called right and wrong, that are not opinions, but based upon fact and the unchangeableness of his being, you're, you're going to be a little lost. Because that's what we proclaim here. Because we believe that God exists. And we believe that he's revealed himself in the Bible and in the person of Jesus Christ. 
It affirms our, a, a right moral standard originating through himself and established and redeemed in the covenant of his son's blood. We would like to think that we could escape the dreadful consequences of sin just by being a better person. But the truth of the matter is, if that were the case, then the communion that we just took would mean nothing. Because Jesus' sacrifice shares with us that he died for our sins because we couldn't make up for it. So we have a problem. Any self-styled fix for our sin problem negates the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. We have to recognize that as believers in Christ. Those of us who are God-fearing men and women. Romans chapter 4 states it this way. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So going back to Abraham, the man of faith that we read about last week, it was credited to him as righteousness because he believed in God. And God, as a result, justified the wicked. It's not how you and I like to see ourselves, is it? We don't like to see ourselves as wicked in need of redemption. Wish we could kind of strap up our bootstraps and and do things ourselves. But God is the one who justifies the wicked. And that, by necessity, according to the scripture, includes you and me. But the good news is, God's the justifier of the wicked. Praise God for that. I could not be standing here today talking to you unless God had changed my life, my direction. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. It's a little bit further down from what um, Trinidad shared with us today. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. For those who have a problem with the Bible or the Bible's set morality, you don't have a problem with the Bible's set morality. You have a problem with God. Because he who comes to faith must believe that God is and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him. And all the standards thereby that have been created are by God. Therefore, the understanding of what sin is, is actually predicated upon whether or not there's a God. If there's no God, then all the standards of right and wrong are merely arbitrary. However, belief in God, and more specifically the God of the Bible, gives us hope that right and wrong can be firmly established. And more than that, it gives us hope that though we're sinners, our faith in God through Christ can have a stand justified before God because of his work on the cross. And believe it or not, this is where we begin 
with Lot's account. See, I said all of that to get us to a place to realize that Lot is a believer in God. And how do we know that? Let's check it out. Let's go back to last week's reading in uh, Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at the first five verses. So we look at the calling of Abraham. And I'm going to call him Abraham. I know it says Abram, but he's already Abraham in our account. So he's Abraham from here on out. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go into the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he had set out for Haran, and he took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they went out to the land, they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Did you notice that the calling of God comes to Abraham, but his nephew Lot goes with him? The rest of his family doesn't. And we would find that out because we, we read last week about how the rest of the family, they would find out many years later, had expanded and had family members, have other family members, and they had nephews and uncles and aunts and all these other people who showed up. But Abraham, by faith, went to the place that God had designated him. And Lot wanted to be on that journey. Because he believed in those promises that God was giving him. As a matter of fact, as they get there, we see the blessing of God because God begins to multiply their stuff. They have herds and they they grow larger and larger over time to the point that that they're going to get into a fight with one another, their herdsmen and uh, with one another because God has so blessed them. There's just not enough room for them where they have chosen to occupy at the time. And so... To make things easier, Abraham tells Lot, wherever you want to go, let there be no contention between us. If you choose left, I'll choose right. If you go north, I'll go south. Just wherever you want to go, you have the pick of the land before you. Choose wherever you want. And so in Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 10, it says this, Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, set out toward the east. Two men, the two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. See, the rest of this story is a cautionary tale for you and me. About the deceitfulness of sin and the heavy price that it extols on the person and on everybody around them. This isn't just a tale for the believer, it's for the non believer as well. And it's good for us to go through what happens in, in this uh, account to recognize for you and me how easily we can fall into the same trap. So the culture of Sodom is talked about as being exceptionally evil. And many of us only know of the account in in Genesis that comes to mind 
about what we're going to read today, about the judgment of God upon the people, but God actually has a lot more to say about it in other places in the Bible. And so in Ezekiel chapter 16, as God is about to punish the people of Israel by kicking them out of the land, by the people of Judah, by kicking them out of the land because of their detestable nature, he actually compares them to Sodom. But more than that, he describes the culture of Sodom before he destroyed them. So let's take a look at it together. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 16. Starting in verse 46. Your older sister was Samaria. This is comparing Jerusalem to these other cities. Your older sister was Samaria who lived to the north with you and her daughters. And your younger sister who lived to the south of you with her daughters was Sodom. You not only walked in their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So what we see happening in this place of Sodom is that Sodom was haughty, was overfed, was unconcerned about the people around them. How did they get that way? Because those were the symptoms that led them to do detestable things. The judgment that we see taking place in Genesis that we will read together in just a moment. The backdrop of where Lot finds himself. What happened? Well, we see the, the blessing of God divorced from the person of God. We see the blessing of God divorced from the person of God. It's something that tempts us in Wealthy nations, wealthy cities, places where there's an abundance of things, is that we're tempted. You and I are tempted to forget God amongst the stuff that we have. It's a warning that God would give the people of Israel at a later time when we read in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's the same type of failing. Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 10, it says this. He's talking to the Israelites as they're about to enter the land of promise. So we've talked about how he's kicking them out of the land of promise and kind of working our way backwards. Why so? Verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied and you build fine houses and settle down and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Your 
your heart's going to become proud. Another word for that is haughty. Same word that's describing what happened to Jerusalem so many years later because they had forgotten the Lord their God. Skipping down to verse 17 in that same section. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. And then down to verse 19. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed like the nations the Lord destroyed before you. So you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. You know what we find when we come into this section of Scripture and we start looking at the culture of Sodom? Sodom is about to be judged by God because of this ungodly culture that has been rising up. But God gives the same standard to the people of Israel saying, if you act like them, I'm going to do the same to you. Which he fulfills thousands of years later. And what's his charge? You are even worse than Sodom. And it's no different than what we have today. Because when we go to the New Testament, we look at Romans chapter 1. And we talk about what it happens when we forget God. We get the same list of traits that inevitably bubbles up from societies that forget about God. Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 28, it says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the society that Lot moved next to. I would dare say that you and I are living in a society very similar. And here's the thing. The one thing that we see with God is that God hasn't changed. Before the law is given, he's casting judgment on this type of lifestyle. After the law is given, he casts judgment for them not upholding the law. And after the law is fulfilled through Jesus Christ on the cross, we read here that without God, we are depraved and agents of wrath of God that are deserving of God's punishment because this is where it naturally leads. Lot could have chose to stay everywhere, right? But he went down to Sodom because Sodom was shiny. Sodom was the Las Vegas of the day. Las Vegas brands itself so proudly as Sin City, right? All the glitz and lights and glamour. And they make a mockery of sin as if it were something that it could be trifled with. And that God would just not 
notice. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? It's the catch line, right? As if sin only affects the immediate area of my personage and nothing else. And as we're going to find out today, the land in which Lot chose to settle, the land in which you and I live in, is much more dangerous than we could ever imagine it to be. Specifically because it rests upon the blessings that God has provided without the acknowledgement that God exists. This is why Abraham prayed for the people who were there. Now, Genesis chapter 18, the chapter before we have uh, God talking to Abraham and God telling Abraham that I'm going to go destroy the city. And, and Abraham begins to plead for the city and says, Lord, you will not you know, wipe away the righteous with the wicked. If there are 50 people who are there, surely you won't destroy the city. And he begins to barter with God and get it all the way down to 10. And you know why? Because he knows that his cousin, his nephew, Lot, is there. This isn't just a random city that he's casting judgment on. He's casting judgment on a place where Lot, whom he had taken and had gone into the promised land with him, had resided for at least 15 years, maybe as much as 20 He'd been there a long time. This is the backdrop of Genesis 19. For us to really understand what's going on, this is the culture. So when we read of the angels, it's not a singular event that we're reading in Genesis 19 that says, oh, this is so bad. No, this was a way of life in this city. And it had grown to be this way because the fact that God had been removed from the people. So let's look at it in its entirety. Genesis chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. And when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men of every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind them and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. And then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. 
The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you. Get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. And he said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. And when he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city for the Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes and you've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. And he said to them, very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew the cities in the entire plain, including all of those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke of a furnace. And so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zor and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zor. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, our father is old, and there's no man around us, around here to lie with us as is custom all over the earth. Let us get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. And that night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and lay with him, and he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again and you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went and lay with him again. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites today, and the younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites today. It's kind of stunned silence, right? It's almost like something we would re, we would watch on, you know, seeing the ta- tabloids or Jerry Springer or something like that, right? How, how bad things have gotten. And yet I, I find a lot of our news stories today seem to mirror a lot of those things. Yet when we look at Lot, 
and we look at this account as a whole. We take into consideration those things that we talked about in the background, that, that Lot is a believer in God. There are things that are in Lot's favor in this passage, and there are things that are terribly, terribly against him. Let's talk about the things in his favor first. Lot's still a believer in God. As this whole passage takes place, he's the only one that recognizes the two angels that come in as being sent in much the same way that Abraham did when they were three. The three visitors in Genesis 18, one of them being a pre-incarnate Christ that sticks around afterwards and talks with Abraham and barters with him concerning the city of Sodom. But the other two leave to go to the city and Lot recognizes him. He's sitting at the gate of the city and when they enter in, he entreats them. He says, come, come into my house. And though they said they were going to stay in the city square, he said, no, we want you to come into my house. And in much the same way as with Abraham, when he said, come and have a meal with me, come and sit down, it was the same thing. They recognized these angels, that these were sent from God, had a presence about them. Second thing that's in his favor is that he's horrified by the culture that's around him. The mob comes to his door, knocks on his door. Those men that came here, you need to let them, uh, bring them out here because we want to have sex with them. And he says, no, no, my friends, no, no, do not do this evil thing. He's horrified. The culture in which we're living, that he's living in, he has had to endure these terrible things around his culture for a long period of time that are antithetical to his faith in God. As a matter of fact, 2 Peter chapter 2 talks about what's happening in the spirit of Lot as he's in the middle of this terrible situation that he surrounded himself with for 15 to 20 years. Starting in verse 6, it says, And if he condemned, talking about God, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Lot wasn't exactly happy to be there. Maybe he felt stuck. I have no idea. You guys ever been in a situation where it's just so overwhelming, like, I wish I had never come here. I thought this was going to be so much different, I got here, and this is a bad situation. Anybody been in that situation? A lot finds himself there, and maybe he doesn't feel like he has any way out, for whatever reason. I'm not saying it's justified, I'm saying that's his mindset. And he finds himself in this city that he chose And every day, after day, after day, after day, he's just like, wow, what am I doing here? What is going on around me? It is getting so bad out there. 
I never thought it would come to this. How many of you have said those same things about our culture? We're living in the same times. We really are. We see that God rescues him and his family because of the prayers of Abraham. It's another good thing, right? These are things in Lot's favor. We have, we have Abraham interceding. And here in this account in Genesis 19, when we look at verse 29, it says this, So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This is in his favor. He's not only still a believer in God, he has an uncle who is a believer in God who is interceding for him on his behalf and that's the reason why he comes out, I don't want to say unscathed, but he is left alive and spared the destruction that the rest of Sodom endured. It should be an encouragement for you and me. The prayers of a righteous man are effective, right? told that in James, you and I should practice being that righteous man for people that we know who maybe have compromised their faith and are walking away. Your prayers may make all the difference in their life. But while those are the things in Lot's favor, Lot has been terribly compromised by the culture that has surrounded him for 15 to 20 years. See, I find it ironic that while he protects the angels that are in his care, he is willing to cast his daughters out to the mob. Verse 8, we go back there. I mean, after the commendable thing of saying, no, no, don't do this. Verse 8 is, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Like his daughters were not supposed to be under the protection of his roof. What a sad commentary on a father. What a sad commentary that I would rather my daughters be abused than these guests who have come into my house. I am comfortable with this way of immorality, but just not this far with these men. I'm fine with my daughters being sexually immoral or sexually molested, but I'm not fine with being the sexual immorality that leads to a same-sex attractiveness. Somewhere I've drawn this line right here that God never drew. We've made okay that which God never wanted to be okay. Second thing is this. In such a godless atmosphere, it's pretty evident that Lot has kept quiet about his faith. He's had 15 to 20 years 
to tell others about God while he is there. The whole premise of Abraham's prayer is based upon the fact that his, his nephew, who came out because of the promise of God, who has seen God work in the midst of all of this, who knows he is a believer in God, surely he's had an influence among the people of this city in that 15 to 20 years period of time that there will at least be 10 people. Ten who are righteous in this place. You count his wife, you count his two kids, you count their their future sons-in-law. That's six right there, just in the family. If I've got my family right, we're halfway there. Some of you got Bon Jovi in your head right now, right? Whoa, we're halfway there. We're at six if, if, if he's done that right. And if all of them had just reached one person during that time, that's 12, city is saved. That's it. The only way that this happens is if he's quiet about his faith because he goes to his sons-in-law and he says, the Lord's going to destroy this place. He waits to the last second and they think he's joking. It's not really going to happen. No, no, this is really going to happen. He's off his rocker again. He never talks about God. And then there's tragedy. Because we think that sin and compromise only affects us personally. And Lot, as he's leaving this place, his wife, whom we don't know where he got her from, maybe he, she was from the cities of Sodom, may not be a believer in God herself, turns and looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. His future sons-in-law, whom he obviously cared about because he came to warn them to try and get them out of that place, decided to stay. They are no more. And the idea of compromise for you and me, thinking that we can play with sin and it's only going to affect us. But when the consequences of it come to fruition... We find out what a lie that really is. He loses his wife in the judgment and his daughters because they have been morally compromised. I say, you know what? There are no more men. We don't, we, we don't know what's going to happen. We're up, we're up in the mountains now. And dad's the only one here. Let us preserve our line by going into him and doing something abominable. Where, where did they get this idea that this was Okay. And they both become pregnant from their father. So they bought into the lie of the culture that freedom was the ability to do every depraved thing imaginable. See, we're hearing the same echoes today that the idea of freedom is not being able to, you know, to do Everything that you want to do. All of those people who believe in a God and believe in these prohibitions because God has created us this way. You need to shake off these shackles to be able to do what everybody else in the culture is doing because that's where real freedom is found. But it's not really freedom. It's actually the worst kind of slavery. 
Second Peter, continuing on from that account that we talked about earlier. Starting in verse 17. Talks about those who would proclaim these, this freedom to be able to do whatever you want. Forget the idea of sin. It doesn't matter. What you need is the freedom to be able to explore that sin, decide what you want to do and what you don't want to do. That's true freedom. The Word of God speaks of these people this way. These men are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they'd escape the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. We see God is serious. We see this word depravity in every one of these sections of Scripture. That they were of a depraved mind and were doing things that they should not have done. And what led them that way was that they had cast out the knowledge of God and they had become compromised in their lifestyle. And for the unbeliever, it meant total destruction. And for the believer, it meant consequences that are unimaginably intense. It's the worst kind of slavery. It's a slavery that ensnared Lot and his family. And while Lot was spared because he knew God, though terribly compromised, his the cost of his wife... A distorted view of righteousness. I think we get to see Lot in heaven. We're going to ask him, was it worth it? He's going to say no. On top of it, we have two people groups that are grown up from it. And they're the cultures of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And these people are not known for their faithfulness to God. So we see a generational sin that is brought forth through Lot. Because of his compromise. This is why it says in Exodus chapter 20. In the Ten Commandments. Verse 4 it says you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above. Or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I the Lord your God am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Casting off this idea of who God is only leads to destruction in our life and in the lives of our children and their children because we set forth a pattern for a disregard of God. It 
And the truth of the matter is, anybody who's a believer in Christ, we can see it coming. Because when we get rid of God, all of these things naturally follow. But there's hope. And that's a good thing. We need hope in this culture, don't we? Amen, right? I'm so tired of this culture. How many of you are tired of this culture? I'm tired of the culture. And, and I have to honestly admit that I've been affected by the culture. That the culture that surrounds me, that bids me to cast off Christ, affects me. Sometimes I listen to its voice. This is where I live. It's where you live. So I want to remind you of what it says back in Romans. Romans chapter 4, where we began this passage, we begin with hope. It's where Lot began and where we can find ourselves again. It says, However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And I love what it says in Exodus. The very next line in Exodus, when they talk, after it talks about the sins of the fathers visiting to the third and fourth generation. But... I love the word but because it's a change of direction, right? But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, there is a way to break this pattern. There is a way to come out of a, a place of compromise with faith intact. And I won't say unscathed, but it looks more like Abraham than Lot. See, you can't fight this culture yourself because you're part of it, whether you want to believe it or not. You can't fight this culture in your family, in your community. You can't do it by staying silent and hoping and praying that it'll just go away because what they're missing, they're disregarding because they have no fear of God. God is out of the equation until God is brought back into the equation. Things will never be made right personally. Things will never be made right in their family, in your workplace, in your community, in your nation. doesn't matter. With God outside of the picture, we are, we are destined to move in this direction. We need God back in, and you can't do that by being silent. You have to start standing up. You have to believe that God is. And that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. But he has to be first. And that's hard in a culture that wants everything else to be first. 
That's hard when we have so many distractions of the shiny, just like Sodom did, just like the people of Israel did, just like Lot had. Why was he compromised? He was compromised because the shiny distracted him away from God, and he stopped talking about God, and he stopped being the redeeming force that God had created him to be in that community that he wants you and me as believers in Christ now to be that same thing. But you know what? It can't happen unless God is first. First. That's how you break the spirit of compromise. That's so prevalent in our culture today. See, that's the difference between Abraham and Lot. And that can be the difference between the old you who is enslaved by these desires and the new you, the new creation that God wants to make in you through belief in Jesus Christ. Because God is in the business of justifying the wicked. And for that I'm so happy. Because I'm that wicked person who needs Jesus. So I can follow him. Him first. And that people can see my life. And recognize the change in my life. And they can say why are you different? And I can say it's because of God. It's because of what Jesus has done. Because he can do that to your life too. If you're tired of seeing the things of this world. And all the ebbs and flows. That it goes from here to here to here to here. And you want stability. I tell you today. You can come and rest on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. That unchanging nature of God. And that forgiveness that will always be there for you. How cool is that? In a culture that's grasping for straws. That's how you defeat the spirit of compromise. Do you stand with me? Are you in the middle of that compromise? We live in a very compromised culture. I think we would acknowledge that we pretty much live in Sodom. Has it affected our walk? Are we a little bit more like like Lot and a little less like Abraham? The only way we're going to change our lives, to change our culture, change the things around us is to put God first and rest solely upon him. And my encouragement to you today is that if you haven't put your trust in Jesus and you're looking for a solid foundation by which to build your faith, one that's not going to change that 20 years from now, it's going to be the same today as it will be 20 years from now, 40 years from now, a thousand years from now, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can have that. And if you've forgotten that, you can have that again. Because I serve a God who justifies the wicked. Won't you come today? I'm going to ask the elders to come forward if you have anything to pray for. If you want to pray for new life in Christ, we invite you to come. If you need repentance because you've been in compromise, we invite you to come. And if you just need courage to speak the name of God and start being salt and light, 
to a culture who desperately needs it, we invite you to come. Elders, so I just have you guys come down here and just be ready. Let's pray together. God, I want to thank you for this time. Pray in the name of Jesus right now. I pray for myself. I pray for any compromise in my life that doesn't need to be there, Lord. Live in a culture that is much like Sodom, but you are unchanging. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the sins that are there that you had punished are the sins that you punished for Israel, are the sins that you punished even to this day. That you don't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And in that there is hope. And so God, I bring myself before you right now in the name of Jesus. And I pray that you would search my heart and know everything about me. And if there's anything that is unclean and wicked and not right, I ask you, Heavenly Father, that you bring this to the forefront, to my light, that I may repent, turn away, so I can serve you first in all things. And escape this culture of compromise. And to live for God and to show the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. If any are missing that hope today, I bid them, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself this day. They can have something better than what this world has to offer. Oh, give us courage, oh God. Help us to speak the name of Christ boldly to a culture that needs it. So if we're here 15 or 20 years, that we can actually say we've touched so many people with the message of Jesus Christ because we were unwilling to stay silent about this good news. Help us, oh God, to be the salt and light that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.